You're listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Adrian Frost and Laura Geyser. This month, we're reading The Loving Push by Temple Grandin and Deborah Moore. Let's get into it. Hi, Laura. Hi, Adrian. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the SLP Book Club. Today, we are talking about Chapter 6 from The Loving Push. Well, first of all, this chapter is about compulsive video gaming. So it's actually called Danger Ahead, Compulsive Gaming and Media Recluses. So I just wanted to state, you know, at the beginning, this is sort of more for parents, although I think we can still gather a lot of helpful information as speech therapists. You know, when kids are gaming compulsively, it still really affects them, which in turn affects them at school. And that's where we come into place. So I think that there are some real gems in this chapter and lots of information that can help with having conversations with parents. Maybe we are noticing behaviors at school that are influenced by the gaming and we might want to have kind of a sensitive conversation with a parent. So take it with a grain of salt, but I found this to be pretty interesting. Yeah. It is really about how compulsive gaming affects a child's brain, why autistic kids are especially vulnerable, how game developers intentionally construct games to create compulsion-ripe conditions, and what to do if the child has been sucked in. And the authors actually call this an epidemic. This book was written in 2015, and I was thinking about this frequently reading the chapter. Things have changed a lot. I mean, it's been seven, almost eight years since it was published. So, you know, the video games just keep getting more addictive, (laughs) Yeah, Uh, more available on phones. And um, I don't think this is getting any better. No. So there is a quote from Martha sort of in the beginning about social media that I found especially relatable. And I think maybe everybody would feel this way. But she said, at home, if I spend more than half an hour on Facebook, I never fail to lift my head without feeling disappointed that I gave up so much of my personal time on something that is so inherently unfulfilling. I was like, wow. Martha, way to put into words. Way to put it so succinctly. Exactly how we all feel. (laughs) I know. And social media, I mean, I'm not trying to go off on a tangent, but man, it can be a time suck. So on page 111, the authors cover all different kinds of video games. So I'm not going to go over in detail what they have there. But if you're interested in learning more, we recommend you read the short blurb explaining all of the different kinds. The authors also cover the popularity of Minecraft, a building game. If you work in a school at all, you're probably familiar at least a little bit with Minecraft. (laughs) It's really popular. And they share a nice little story about a mom who got some blocks, like wooden blocks made that look like the Minecraft blocks. And then a lot of the neighborhood kids were coming over to play with her child in the driveway. So it was sort of a good example of bridging the gap between a video game and real life. And it helped her son to be more social. But if your child is going to play a video game, it's best for them to play one that involves puzzles and has a definitive endpoint. Long games that never really have an ending are more of a time suck and seem to be meant to just chew up any available time. So Adrian, I actually shared with you that I am a gamer and <laughs> my fiance mm-hmm. and I have an Xbox. We've gone through periods of time where we really love playing certain games, but I would say every game we've ever played has had a definitive endpoint, never gotten into those kind of open world, never ending games. 
And when you have especially a really beautifully done one that involves a lot of puzzles and you know it's going to end and you can look online and people will say, oh, it's about six hours of gameplay, then you kind of want to stretch it out. It is different. You feel like, oh, I could sit down and this game will be done over in six hours if I just sat and played right now. Or I could dedicate, you know, like 45 minutes here and there and really enjoy the experience. So, I mean, it's just such a different thing than when you just feel like you want to be in that world all the time. Absolutely. And we will talk about, you know, recommendations for games that are a little more stimulating, mentally, mentally stimulating. I mean, these games are all really overstimulating, which is part of the problem, but there definitely are ways to choose better ones. So we'll talk about some of those, but good to know you're a gamer, Laura. You can pipe in whenever you feel (laughs) you have anything to add. (laughs) (laughs) There are negatives to compulsive gaming. So these may not surprise you, but headaches can develop from eye strain and sensory overload. Backache can turn into chronic back problems from being seated in the same position for really long periods of time. Carpal tunnel syndrome can develop from using a controller or a keyboard too much. The child can be sleep deprived, staying up all night so often that they actually reverse their sleep cycle. And their diet can suffer because when you're playing games all night, you know, or all day and night, it's really easy to just reach for whatever's there. And often it's junk food or maybe they just skip meals. This just made me think of, have you ever seen the South Park episode where they get really into, I think, is it World of Warcraft? Oh, yeah. And like Cartman just becomes just a blob. Like he's so, he's eating so many like. Oh, yeah. He's like. In the basement. And all of them, all the kids just deteriorate. They're just eating junk food and playing nonstop and you can just see it. Yeah. I mean, worst case scenario, but probably, I mean, it happens. So for sure. (laughs) Personal hygiene also deteriorates and they might neglect basic things like showers or have a vitamin D deficiency from being indoors too much. When selecting games for your child, they recommend having a family plan for media use. So they also recommend that you sit with the child and talk to them about the game as they play in order to provide more language-rich interactions. Content should be chosen very carefully and should reflect your child's experiences in the real world, be organized around everyday themes, and depict positive interactions between people. You're in control of the quality of what the child's accessing, so always be thinking, you know, you are the one who's in the position to make the choice. Content should be high quality so that the child is learning something valuable. And we still need to remember that these kids need to be outside getting exercise. They need to be reading or having other hobbies and using their imagination in free play. So I did want to talk a little bit about my four-year-old child who does use an iPad sometimes and was gifted a Nintendo Switch for her fourth birthday. Wow. This is not something I would have selected for her, but my uncle is a gamer and (laughs) he wanted my daughter to, I guess, have access to that. So we give her games on there that are really, I know in the chapter they reference a lot of like girls like to play games that have to do with animals and whatever but she does enjoy animal crossing and that was really fun it's just like fishing and collecting things and you know really innocent sort of repetitive things you could do in real life and uh, recently we got her dreamlight valley which is like a disney based game yeah it's not violent it's really fun for her but you know my husband or i always sit with her and talk to her about things and try our best but there are so many things out there I also really enjoy for therapy 
and for my child, um, Toka Boca's games for the iPad. Yeah. There's a horse stable one that's really good. And there's a city one that's really good. And it's just kind of like she's playing dolls. You know, you can move the people and it's side scrolling. And when I was reading these specifications for what you should be choosing. I was really thinking of them because everything they put out is really high quality. Except for the newer versions of Hair Salon, the characters look really weird. <laughs> I've always used those sparingly in in-person therapy. But, you know, when we were faced with doing only teletherapy for a while, or, you know, I know that you do a lot of teletherapy, Adrian. I was using Toka Boca a lot because for the kids to direct me, I mean, it was so language rich. Yeah. It was such a good activity. And yeah, they do mirror real life experiences. You know, if you're the cooking one, the kitchen. Yeah. Oh, fun. <laughs> so I just feel like those can be beneficial. But yeah, you have to watch when you're just plopping the iPad in front of them and leaving them alone. And they're not really getting any interaction with other people. For sure. Biologically, gaming works like any other drug. Role-playing games in particular have become known as the crack cocaine of the gaming world, with so many rewards and carefully engineered reinforcements scheduled intentionally built into their design. These games create an experience that your child doesn't get anywhere else. So the designers specifically make these games addicting. And that's kind of dark, honestly. Yeah, it really is. Gaming actually represents a drug-like solution to multiple challenges inherent in kids with autism's biological wiring. So they're more likely to turn into compulsive gamers than their neurotypical teens. Autistic children tend to hyper-focus, and so they focus completely on these video games and they become super absorbed. It's just the way their brain is wired. And when they're given this, it's like they are just so much more susceptible to losing themselves in these games. Children with autism start playing video games and using electronic devices and the internet at an earlier age than neurotypical peers. The only exception to this is social media. So obviously, you know, kids with autism aren't going to be as called to be on social media as neurotypical teens. But this overall is really dangerous because even at low or moderate levels of use, screen time probably has a more pronounced effect on an autistic child. Mm -hmm. Video games are typically repetitive and inflexible, which are patterns that autistic brains prefer. And autistic children who are exposed to computer games are at a higher risk for developing a preference for interacting with computers over people. Yeah. And then every single time they play, they're strengthening their inflexible ways of thinking. It's kind of like a perfect storm. Yeah. The best approach to reducing the addiction is to limit video game time to one or two hours a day. And for older kids who are severely addicted, they recommend slowly reducing the time playing video games. And you can try to fill the time up with hands-on activities. They recommended car repairs. <laughs> um, you know, every kid is different. So just find something that the kid likes. But they even talked about one severely addicted teen who had to be sent to a residential facility where all video games were taken away. Yeah. And it took six months to gradually get the teen to do anything else. Compulsive video gaming playing actually changes the child's brain. Scans of gamers' brains look different than non-gamers. And they actually look like the brains of drug addicts. So the prefrontal cortex shows impaired functioning. And we know that this is the part of the brain that helps the child make decisions, stay motivated, flexible, and organized. 
So that's pretty problematic. Mm-hmm. And then they also do worst on tests involving memory and decision making. Yeah. And gaming has even been shown to shrink the brain. Some scans have shown less gray matter in gamers' brains and in non-gamers. And the more shrinkage, the more errors that these compulsive gamers made on the memory and decision-making tests. So This is really terrifying information to hear. Yeah, I had no idea. Because of how prevalent gaming is and to know the changes. On a lighter note, I did w- <laughs> I did want to say... That this is our, we've done two books for the SLP book club, and now both have mentioned that study of taxi drivers' brains changing in the area of, you know, when they go into how experiences change the brain. It's the hippocampus. So I'm like, okay, that's two in a row. They've mentioned that study. (laughs) Next month, we're doing Smart But Scattered. I'm just going to be like (laughs) on the lookout to see if they mention that again. Oh my gosh. I think that's pretty famous because it is the hippocampus. And so every time like my husband and I are driving somewhere, we're like, don't use, you know, Google Maps. Really work your hippocampus. <laughs> see if you can get there. Yeah. Oh no. I I know that I've heard that study mentioned a bunch of times, but it's funny that it's mentioned in both of these books. But yeah, and you know, just to know that this is having real impact, really changing the structure and function of a child's brain. This is not just a harmless activity when they're doing it at these levels. Yeah. Many, many hours every day. It is really, really something that needs to be addressed. For sure. And it is so common, you know, and one thing that actually struck me was throughout this whole chapter, they never once discuss violent video games. Oh, no, which is something that is so concerning to me. I'm like, we're not even talking about violent games. This is just gaming in general. So yeah, yeah, concerning for sure. Yeah. In the book, they use a really great analogy about the autistic brain and heaters. So if your house has central heating, then pretty much every room is the same temperature, right? But for children with autism, it's like their brain is a series of rooms in a house and each room has its own individual heater. So some heaters work really well and the room gets really warm and others work only a little bit and then some work not at all. So think about gaming as a room where the heater works the best of all the rooms and it actually makes the room so hot that it catches on fire and prevents all the other rooms from being warm. That'll make you remember. (laughs) what a visual yeah (laughs) it's our job as parents and therapists to make sure that all the rooms are heated at least a little bit so the other skills don't atrophy the authors cover a theory from christopher mulligan who is a therapist that works with high-functioning autistic teens and young adults and his theory is that the rates of autism oh gosh this is so fascinating to me i'm sorry i have to just point it out we all know that the rates of autism have been increasing pretty steadily over the years. And they had a couple different theories about how technology might be impacting those numbers. So his theory is that the rates of autism are actually influenced by technology use because it causes thinking to be so rigid and social skills and other interests and hobbies to decline. They do talk a little bit about how the rates of autism started going up pretty much exactly on the same timeline as when the first Xbox was released. So you got to think, you know, it probably took a couple years of kids using those for it to start affecting their sleep and their social skills and for making them seem really inflexible. And then, you know, these kids are now in fourth grade and parents and teachers and specialists are starting to notice and to refer them for evaluation 
And then the next thing you know, we have all these kids being diagnosed on the spectrum. And maybe that technology changed their behavior so much that it appears that way. Yeah. Or maybe literally changed their brain, you know, after what we just heard about. I really like this quote from Christopher, that therapist. I found it to be so poignant. So he said, one thing is for certain. Three decades ago, no child was living inside their homes, isolated from peers and community, sitting in front of a computer, scrolling through facts or images, playing video games, looping through YouTube videos, or watching a scene in a DVD for hours on end. If one were to sit down and design a form of environmental stimulation that would be toxic or damaging to the ASD brain by virtue of exacerbating the core neurological deficits, that stimulation is 21st century technology. I just got chills. (laughs) I know. Yeah. But ultimately, like, this whole book is just... For me, the message is like, parents, you have control over the situation. You have control over how you parent. You have control over the environment. Mm -hmm. And it's up to you to step up and really do the best by your child. And when I think about this, I mean, we'll talk about, you know, ways to do it. But for me, it's really about limiting access. Don't just give up and let your kid have a free for all. Nobody should have free access to everything. Right. Yeah. Like we all need limits and boundaries. Yeah. Get off my soapbox for a second. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, we recognize that all of these things are easier said than done. Of course. And, you know, I'm not a parent. You are. You're not a parent of someone on the spectrum. But these things are hard at first, but then they get better. They're hard for a period so that they'll be easier later and so that your child has the chance to succeed. Right. And the longer I know that in the next chapter, Laura, you'll be talking about this, but the longer you wait, harder it gets. And I think there's some really great stories from a lot of the people profiled in the book of how the push when they were younger helped them and they're so grateful for it. Yeah. Give your future self a gift (laughs) by acting now if you can. The authors also mention a lack of vocational prep classes in high school as a possible factor for the rise in rates of autism, which was pretty interesting. So these kids who weren't really good, like maybe they're not a good fit for college, could have taken classes in the trades and gotten a job at a factory or working for a company, maybe as a plumber, electrician, carpenter. But now they languish at home unemployed. And the parents might then look at them and become concerned and maybe... Think of something they heard about Asperger's or the autism spectrum, and then they look into getting their child a diagnosis. These were kids who maybe 30 years ago, their school had a shop class and they learned the skills and maybe they were picked up as an apprentice right out of school. And then they went on to have successful lives. But now those opportunities aren't present. So they were just suggesting that could be one thing. The author spoke to Dr. Andrew Doan, who says that by playing, I love this analogy too. I'm sorry, I keep interrupting myself. (laughs) But I thought this was so interesting. He says that by playing video games, the child will become a young adult whose brain is all thumbs. And then he talked about using your hand to visualize this, right? So the thumb is like possessing quick analytical skills and quick reflexes, which are positives from video game play. And then the other fingers, you know, the index finger is communication skills. And then the middle finger is having bonds with people. The ring finger is exhibiting little empathy. And then the pinky is self-control. And when compulsive gaming comes into play, those four main fingers fold down 
because they're not being exercised. And the only one that is, is the thumb. So you have quick analytical skills and reflexes, but everything else suffers. Yeah. (laughs) It's almost making me want to cry because I have one kid I'm thinking about who I worked with from the time he was in maybe first grade until he was going into fourth. And this is one of the coolest kids you'll ever meet high-functioning autism, just so, so bright, really, really cool, really funny kid. But at home, he doesn't have a ton of supervision. And during the pandemic, he was really on his own getting himself on the computer and he was there every day. But when I would have him in a group for speech therapy, he would be, when it was not his turn, playing video. I mean, he was on the computer playing video games non-stop. I would have to interrupt him to get him back. And, you know, I was grateful on days where all the other participants were absent, where I could just get one-on-one time and get his focus. But when you think about those kids who have so, so much to offer the world, some of our best and brightest kids who are on the spectrum, not having that family support to push them and getting sucked into this world of gaming. I mean, this kid was in third grade and he was nonstop. Just picture where he goes from there in middle school, in high school. So I just, to think about that, to think about his big bright light just slowly diminishing and him becoming all thumbs (laughs) is just so horrific. So yeah. You know, when you started telling that story, it reminded me of a student I had, too, who was in middle school. And when we were doing virtual therapy during the pandemic, it was the same thing where he would like put the camera only on his forehead and his hair. And I could tell he was like wearing headphones and playing a video game. And when we came back in person, this was the kid who every time we're trying to have because he had social skills goals, obviously he was on the spectrum. So when we were working on just like talking about interests or talking about life experiences, all he wanted to talk about was video games. And I just felt really caught in this between a rock and a hard place of like, you want kids to feel like they can come to speech and talk about what they're interested in. Yeah. And when you have these kids with really specialized interests, like trains or, you know, Disney or video games. It's like you want to lean into that so they feel heard and accepted. But at the same time, it's just was clear that his world was narrowed down so much to just this like pinpoint, you know, video games. But also the thing is that often in elementary school, the thing that kids on the spectrum are able to connect with neurotypical kids about is video games because so many of them play Fortnite and so many of them play Minecraft. And when I would have my kids from autism classes in groups with kids from general ed classes, they would be like, you play Minecraft too? Right. (laughs) Cool. You know, so this is a thing that we celebrate. Oh, you guys both do the same thing. And then it's also this thing we're kind of scared of becoming an issue. So, well, it's like it connects and isolates, you know? Yeah. Well, the games also deprive the child of specific social skills. So the lesson from these video games is that you can yell at the computer and it won't punish you. You can throw things, you can stomp away and no one questions or comes after you. So it makes social interaction seem safer, right? Because you can just pull the plug whenever you need to. But this is really not the way things work in the real world. So in the real world, you know, people won't put up with that sort of immaturity or rudeness. And 
that could be really problematic. They're not getting that practice that they need in conflicts and conflict management, especially face to face. But games may also appeal to the part of the child that wants to be part of a group and have an identity within a virtual community. It fulfills otherwise unmet needs, but gaming can also affect self-esteem and cause distance from their friends and family members. So again, it's like some small pros, but a lot of big cons. You know, there's a story in the book about some pretty extreme examples of compulsive gaming, and I'm not going to go over it. You know, it's pretty dark and kind of graphic. So I'll let anybody who wants to just read that go ahead and read it in their copy of the book. But let's just summarize it by saying sometimes it can be pretty devastating for people's lives and for people's families. Games are designed to be addictive, and some companies even have psychologists on staff. I was shocked by this. (laughs) I was like, what? My gosh. And It's their job to tell developers how to use reward and reinforcement ratios, how to foster action among players, and how to manipulate visual attention on screen. Well, I just can't imagine. I mean, we have a code of ethics in ASHA that we must adhere to. And what about psychologists? Don't they have a code of ethics? And to be providing these companies with ways to manipulate, I mean, I guess that's every big industry, the fast food industry, they probably have psychologists, you know, everybody's trying to manipulate us all the time. Use your powers for good, not for evil. (laughs) I know, you (laughs) didn't get into psychology to manipulate. You got into it originally to help people and it's just disappointing. They also had a little part just talking about how top gamers who are really big in the esport world have admitted to using Adderall in order to play longer and have faster reflexes. And apparently they're pretty open about that. So depending on what the child is accessing, they Mm -hmm. could be hearing these really like, you know, positive declarations of inappropriate prescription drug use, just to be aware of that. The first step to treat compulsive gaming is to get the whole family on board. So now we're going to be talking about steps parents can really take to help their child. So parents need to be united as a team and you should consider your own actions and the kind of example you are setting. So if you're on your phone or playing video games all day, it's sending the signal that that's okay. Try to use a therapist if your child already has one. And remember that one, You have to be fully and consistently involved and on board. And two, if a therapist or treatment facility is involved, it should be familiar with both autism and treating compulsions. So we'll talk about like different programs in a little bit, but I was surprised to know that there's not a lot of options that specifically treat this kind of like niche area. The authors go over how to create or design your own intervention, especially as many therapists are unaware of the connection between autism and internet addiction. So step number one is to know your child's patterns and triggers. You can start by making a chart that includes the date and time the child goes online, what they were doing right before they went online, write down exactly what the child did while on the computer, and precisely how long they stayed online. You also want to record the result of that episode of online activity, like maybe they missed dinner or they didn't go to sleep until midnight or they argued with mom over the computer use. So have your child read it and sign it to show that they took in and saw the information and maybe even saw like what an outsider might see because it feels so different when it's them. I made a note of this because I loved the idea of that. I love confronting them with this is the impact it's having on our family and this is how it looks to us from the outside because like Jaime has said when you're in it when you know Jaime in this book says when he's gaming his girlfriend has to really help him become aware of his surroundings he has no awareness of the outside world I loved this chart yeah me too beautifully done (laughs) 
Just like ABA, where they do their big like behavioral analysis in the beginning, seeing like what behaviors and what causes it, this can help you identify triggers. Maybe the child, when he gets uncomfortable or lonely or bored, that's his go-to where he wants to go on the computer or play games. But most importantly, it'll help you figure out baseline use and visibly show progress. So I really like this idea too. And then step two is to put restrictions in place. So this would only happen after two weeks of monitoring their use. The author's recommendations follow the American Academy of Pediatric Guidelines of one to two hours per day of video game play or computer use. So you might tell your child that they can only play multiplayer role-playing games for one hour a day and the other hour can be spent surfing the internet or on educational games. Not sure how realistic that is. <laughs> like you take away their fun game that they're addicted to and you say, please use ABC mouse or whatever. <laughs> Not sure about that, but um, you could always give it a shot. Gaming as a non-work or non-school related screen activity should really be a minor part of a person's life that's reserved for the time after they've completed all of their other responsibilities. So it's not a matter of time, but a matter of priorities. And maybe you could sit there and casually explain this, you know, really make it calm, but also make it to the point, just like their recommendations for any talks you have with kids on the spectrum, you know, just keep it to the point, simple and really clear. Mm -hmm. The authors briefly include a story from Scott, whose parents had strict rules about screen time, but occasionally when they were distracted, he would stay on the computer playing games until one in the morning. And then he himself states that he was useless at school the next day. So this can help us to understand how as SLPs, we have a little bit of a role where we can talk to parents about gaming, especially if it's really obvious, like they're unable to concentrate or too tired to focus on what they need to do at school the next day. And it's also important to make sure that the computer is not in the child's bedroom. Move it out, put it anywhere. I mean, they even said the laundry room. <laughs> like make Ow. them as... I don't have room in my laundry room for a computer. <laughs> <laughs> Just make it so uncomfortable to be on the computer that it's impossible. Yeah. Yeah. The dryer is just rattling next to their ear. <laughs> <laughs> and make sure the door is open because that will really encourage transparency. Parents should expect a lot of pushback when they first try to implement these rules, but just tell them that everybody's on board. Everyone's aware of what's happening. They need to know you're serious. It's important to start by restricting the child's game time, not totally eliminating it. So it's like a gradual decrease. You need to build replacement activities to fill your child's day as well. And make sure to monitor your child if they have friends over so the child isn't gaming on their friend's phone or trying to access it some other way. And be really firm with your child that if they threaten you, threaten to harm themselves, destroy property or do anything illegal, you'll call the police and then make sure to do it. They had some examples in the book of like kids who trashed the house looking for the modem and their parents would hide it and try mm -hmm. to put down some guidelines or kids crawling through like air conditioning vents to try to get to the parents room where the, you know, tablet or the video game equipment is hidden. I don't remember reading that. I know. Yeah, I thought. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I mean, it really is an addiction. And I think it can be helpful depending on how severe it is to think of what you're dealing with as somebody who is desperate to get this. So make sure to just keep your boundaries really clear. Yeah. You'll need to either step up to be your child's coach or consider finding somebody else to fill that role. They said maybe like a local high school or college student or maybe a retired teacher or a family member who would be up for that. It can be helpful to have the child write out a list of who their gaming hurts. I was like, wow. So you can begin the sentence with the words like my gaming hurts blank by blank. My gaming hurts my mom and dad by you know, not letting me spend the free time with them or 
by not joining them when they go on a walk like I used to or whatever. And you can repeat the sentence over and over again, which will appeal to the child's repetitive brain. And then you can also have your child make a list pointing out how their gaming contradicts their moral beliefs. Again, trying to capitalize on the fact that most children on the spectrum hate hypocrites and really value morality. It may also be helpful to get inside of your child's head by being genuinely curious about their game. So have them walk you through it. Ask questions about why they chose their character and what they like the most about them and what they don't like about other characters. This is a good opportunity to have deep discussions about other topics too. Like you could broach a conversation like, are you afraid to grow up? Like where is this fear really coming from? And maybe they'll be more open to talking about it. So just try to understand why the games are so appealing to the child. And then it's also important to brainstorm with the child to come up with ideas of what could replace gaming in their life. So they might need to work on life skills if they're really behind, like depending on where how old they are and how long this has gone on for. If you're trying to get them to move out to an independent living situation, you may need to play some catch up. There are many opportunities for children to find other areas of interest. So this is kind of near the end of the chapter. The list is extensive. But some examples are walking, hiking, kite flying, swimming, bird watching, gardening, laser tag, outdoor concerts, skateboarding, going to the park, you know, anything you can think of. You could also consider checking out local classes, maybe through your parks and rec department, like photography or video editing, painting, coding, music. The best thing about that is that they'll be exposed to different things that might serve as vocations for them. So sort of exposing them to things that might benefit them in the future. And then you should also set aside at least one weeknight and one weekend night for family interaction time. So some ideas of activities for this are playing board games, cooking together, baking together, reading, drawing together, working out like a yoga or exercise video, making slideshows, gardening, learning origami together, doing puzzles, watching a movie, or playing <laughs> with family pets. So there's a lot more examples in the book, but you could just pick one and try it. And then to kind of wrap it up, you know, there are some support groups listed in the book at the end of chapter six. If you're interested, we know from parent anecdotes throughout these past couple chapters that support groups can be really helpful. So you can always Google that or look into that. And then they also have some information on residential programs. Again, this book was written in 2015. So hopefully there's more options out there now. They were only able to find one in the U.S. that works with gaming addicts on the spectrum. So it's called Restart. It's located in Seattle. It's very expensive, not covered by insurance. I don't know if it is now, but it wasn't then. You can look at the program, though, and maybe use it as inspiration for what you need to do with your teen. And I actually looked it up because I was really curious. And it looks like they've really expanded their program. They now have a boarding school. Mm -hmm. So you could, you know, ship off your teen if that's what they need. <laughs> I would imagine that because of the popularity of this book and just Temple Grandin in general, tons of parents have probably read this book. And there's probably been a big pu a push, <laughs> a, push. <laughs> a big push for more programs like this. Or even that program in Seattle probably got a lot of interest in the last seven years. Yeah. You know, I was I didn't have the time to really do an extensive deep dive, but they were offering a lot of programs. And I thought, you know, in the book, she's like, they only take five kids at a time. But now it sounds like, you know, they've really expanded. So who knows, there might be a good option in your area. That's great to hear. But overall, you know, this chapter was so informative. It was a little scary, <laughs> it was educational. And I think the big takeaway is just to remember that if you're a parent 
reading this, you have options. You don't have to fully give in. Restriction is good. There's a balance in everything. And if you're an SLP or a teacher or another specialist and you're listening to this, feel confident that you can have a conversation with a parent and at least bring up your concerns because it's valuable to give it a shot. And it's better to say something than to say nothing. And maybe you can even bring up some of these stats and figures from this chapter to kind of underscore some concerns. I really liked that they compared compulsive gaming to food addiction because this is not something where you can abstain forever from technology like this. Our kids have to use the computers for school, for work. You know, I don't know many people, unless you're like totally off the grid, that don't need to be on a computer at some time or on a screen. So this is really a really fine line to walk. And when you are trying to take away the games, that balance, I mean, I like the idea of having a set time limit every day. The other thing I I forgot to mention this when you were talking about taking advantage of that fact that a lot of kids on the spectrum have this really strong sense of morality, but just talking to kids about the injustice of them being able to spend all of their time entertaining themselves instead of contributing to their family and to the world. And I think this is something we can be addressing really young with our kids in speech, talking to them about their role in this world and that they really need to be contributing in order to have purpose, that they're not just a little island, that they're a part of this bigger thing. And what's your role going to be? And so that when they do become a teenager, they don't just kind of close in and, and get so isolated. Yeah, I like that they emphasize that too. And I think that that's sort of like, you know, this teen best. If you're their parent, you know them the best. If you're somebody who works with them, you know them pretty well. So it's up to you to kind of figure out which way is going to be the most effective way of phrasing things. Are they a kid who is really likes to be, you know, morality police? Then maybe you explain like you're being manipulated and, you know, this isn't going to help you This isn't like what a helpful person in society does. Maybe that's how it appeals to them or you never know. But Mm -hmm. I would say try it all and see what sticks because from what I've heard about some of these consequences, it can be really bad. Yeah. Okay, everyone. Well, thank you so much for joining us for chapter six of The Loving Push. We hope that you really enjoyed this information and that you'll take some of it away to apply to your practice. Hi, Laura. Bye, Adrian. The SLP Book Club is not just a podcast, it's a community. Go to facebook.com slash groups slash the SLP Book Club to join the discussion after each episode. Want even more of the SLP Book Club? We've made all the resources for this book, including chapter summaries and visuals, available for free on our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash the SLP Book Club to download these great materials. To learn more about the SLP Book Club, go to the slpbookclub.com. You can contact us by emailing hello at the slpbookclub.com. Follow us on Instagram at slp underscore book club. Find us on TikTok at the slpbookclub. 